Hey, good morning. Welcome home. So glad you're here. Children, if you're with us and you're between the ages of three and fifth grade, you can follow Cresia down into the youth room for Children's Church. Thank you for doing that. Hey, we had pancakes this morning. Thanks to Marlene and Mary. We want to thank God for you. We have college lunch today. We want to thank God for two generations of the Williams family that's making college lunch. God bless you guys. Thank you. Stick around for that. Double goodness. Um, want to encourage you. I love you. I'm so glad you're here. I really am. Um, want to encourage you to follow along. We're in the gospel experiment. We have some supplemental materials for you and a reading plan. If you haven't been following along with this, I just encourage you to do so. If you haven't, don't beat yourself up. Just pick these up on your way out. There's a table out there. And, uh, and, and just join on because the transformation as we see God, as we see Jesus revealed and respond to him with open hearts is just tremendous. It's just stunning. Uh, we started the gospel experiment just two weeks ago. And uh, in that time, Three people have given their hearts to Jesus Christ. So we're so grateful. Um, following the generous gospel, um, I got a, a message from a friend, uh, and they said, um, God's message to me last weekend was playing out in my life. Um, I was struggling with finances and getting laid off, hours cut, etc. It was getting stressful. Um, then God reminded me that it's not my money and to be generous and faithful, and God will provide what I need. It took a huge weight off my shoulders just letting him have my money or the little bit that I had. Last week was laid off from one job, was cut to only three hours per week. This week, I received a random $600 award, got a new job offer, and was given four times the work hours I was currently getting. Smiley face. God is good and faithful. Yes, he is. Praise God for what he's doing. And what he will do. Okay, we started with the loving gospel. We moved to the generous gospel. And this week we're in the sacrificial gospel. Love and generosity come together, combine, and, and, and are expressed in the sacrificial gospel. We're in Romans. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. We'll be in chapter 3 and chapter 12. It'll take us a little while to get there. So be patient if you don't have a Bible there. Maybe one under one of the seats in front of you. If you don't own one, take that one with you. It's yours to keep as our free gift. Uh, we're talking about the sacrificial gospel. And growing up as a young boy in New York, um, I was a, a big baseball fan. I was not a loyal or good fan uh, in that I would root for either the Mets or the Yankees. Whichever one looked like they were going to do better that year. So... Um, while I was, I, I tried to play the game as, as a young boy, I was a complete spaz and could not play to save my life, but I did understand the game pretty well, um, contrary to the belief of many who have played for the Bethany Belugas. Now, um, what I did understand, because I scored the games um, as I watched them, my understanding of sacrifice was limited to the sacrifice fly. Now, sacrifice fly is this, for those of you who don't know baseball too well. The batter will get up to the plate, and if there are, say, men on first and second, and there's only no, there are no outs or one out, 
the batter will then try often to hit a long fly ball deep into the outfield, which will likely be caught unless I was playing in Little League and then it would be a home run because I would either be picking dandelions or reading the printing on my glove or something. But the concept of the sacrifice fly is that this fly ball would be caught and the runners would tag up and advance. So it was called a sacrifice because the batter would be sacrificing their at-bat, sacrificing their opportunity to be the hero on behalf of the runners who are already on base, which always seemed to me as a young boy to be a raw deal for the batter, which goes to show where my heart was. So, um, but sacrifice is really a very beautiful thing. And we see that as we've done in the previous weeks. We're basing our first six weeks of the gospel experiment on John 3.16. So we're going to put it up there. And I'll ask you, as you've done in the past, to read it out loud with me. Let's do it like we mean it. Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Oh, that's good. And this morning, we're looking. We saw the love in the loving gospel. We saw the gave in the generous gospel. And this morning, we're looking at gave who? Gave what? Gave Jesus, God the Father's only son, the one that he loved, the most perfect gave his only son Jesus as our rescuer? Yes. As our savior? Yes. As our redeemer? Yes. And so much more. This morning we look at Jesus as the perfect blood sacrifice. Now, um, if you're not uh, a follower of Jesus Christ or you're not growing up in the church, we're weird people. We just sang love songs about blood. You know, (laughs) how beautiful the blood. Now, if you're not familiar with this, this can seem a little strange. And If we don't think about it, it can be a little strange. So we're going to go into that this morning. Now, the definition of sacrifice is to forfeit one thing for another thing that is considered to be of higher value. Okay? To forfeit one thing for another thing that is considered to be of higher value. And we see that played out. In a crude way, sacrifice is my pain, your gain. My pain, your gain. I want you to remember that as we go through that. Now, I want to do three things together this morning. We want to first take a look at the sacrificial sacrificial system, the blood sacrifice system that God lays out in the Old Testament. Second, we want to see Jesus as the perfect blood sacrifice for you and for me and why that's important. And lastly, we want to take a look at how should our lives, how should our thoughts, how should our hearts, how should existence be different for us given all of that. So we're going to start out with looking at the sacrificial system. The Bible has a constant theme running through it of blood sacrifice. Now, I could see if you're a parent and you see your 12-year-old sitting in front of the TV watching Die Hard 17 or whatever you got, and the parent says something like, why don't you just turn off that boob tube? And you have to be a parent to use that word. Why don't you turn off the boob tube and go to your room and read the Bible? That's too violent. Really? Have you really thought through that? Because particularly if your child, and, and that is a good idea, I mean, 
But if your child opens the Old Testament in particular, it's violent stuff. It's pretty bloody stuff. And why is that? Why is that? We're going to see. In Genesis 3, it starts right at the beginning with our first parents, Adam and Eve. Now, they think God is holding out on them. We've looked at that before. And they were naked and had no shame, right? Sin wrecked that. That ought to do something to your heart. Sin ruins that. And and self-consciousness and shame and embarrassment and awareness of sin now comes on the scene. So what do they do? They take um, fig leaves and they make clothes for themselves. Now God comes on the scene. He does two things. One, he promises them Jesus, the Messiah, the ultimate covering for sin, the one who now that the universe is fractured, now that their relationship with God is broken, there is one who is going to come as the ultimate blood sacrifice and reunite, bring them back together, bring the universe and and the people back together in the way God intended it to be. He promises Jesus in, in Genesis 3. He also does another thing. He makes for them a covering or clothing out of animal skins. Now, where do animal skins come from? You're brilliant, man. Animals, yes. Here's another way to put it. Your leather shoes, where did they come from? Right, something had to die to get that onto your body. Okay, so God replaces the fig leaf clothing with animal skins for them. Why? Because fig leaves were on God's list of what not to wear for that year, the year zero? No. No. But because fig leaves don't involve death and they don't involve the shedding of blood. And and that's important. Because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. So in doing so, God created the first blood sacrifice, the covering for sin, as a picture of what he was going to do through Jesus Christ. I want us to remember that all Old Testament sacrifice does two things. First, it reminds us that all sin, all sin in our lives, whether we see it as unimportant or a flea bite of a thing, or, or something very, very grave. All sin results in death. And, and secondly, all the Old Testament sacrifices point to Jesus, who is the last and the ultimate blood sacrifice to cover over sin. So all of them point to those two things. And then we jump to Genesis 12. And, and in Genesis 12, God calls a man whose name is Abram at the time. And he's 75 years old. So the message here, the takeaway is this. You are never too old for God to call you to turn the world upside down through him. Okay, so at 75 years old, he's at retirement age. He's probably thinking, I got a great future. I'm going to play shuffleboard in Florida. I'm going to wear sounds about pants. I'm going to eat dinner at 4.30. And I'm going to complain about loud music and the hairstyles of the younger generation. God has other plans. He calls him. He says, Abram. He says, yes, Lord. He says, I want you to leave everything that's familiar. I want you to go because I'm going to show you a new land and I'm going to create through you a new people. And through you will come one who will bless the entire world. He's talking about Jesus Christ. There's a problem. There's two problems. One 
Abraham is 75 years old. And second, Abraham doesn't have a son through whom this line could, could progress. And he says, I'm going to give you a son. And the thought of creating a son may have excited Abram, but at 75 years old, we have other problems, right? So then what happens? God makes a promise, and Abraham hangs on to that promise for seven, 25 years more. 25 years more. So right after Abraham, his name is Abraham now, blows out the hundred candles on his birthday cake, a bonfire waiting to happen. What happens? He and his wife, Sarah, have a son, and they name him Isaac. Now, the name Isaac means this. It means he laughed. He laughed, which for us means you're a joke, kid. You're God's punchline. Can you get this? A hundred-year-old guy has a son. He laughed. That's his name. But Isaac is so much more than just a son. He is God's promise delivered. This is the one through whom the line will continue to go until it gets to the promised Savior, the promised rescuer, the promised redeemer, the promised sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So Abraham treasures this child, as you can imagine, and it continues on, and it goes to Genesis 22. Now, Abraham is older. Isaac has grown up a little bit. And God says to Abraham, I want you to take this son whom you love, your only son, the hope, the treasure, the one you're pinning all your life upon, and I want you to go offer him to me as a sacrifice. I want you to kill him. Now, what is this picturing? They don't know. He doesn't know. He doesn't know that it's a picture of Jesus Christ because the movie... The Passion of the Christ hadn't been released yet. He hadn't seen it. But it looks like what God is doing, he's calling to Abraham to be God the Father and Isaac to be Jesus Christ. And so he goes, and in faithfulness, he takes his son and he loads him up with the wood because he's going to kill him and then offer him as a burnt offering. So Isaac is carrying the wood up the mountain. What does that look like? It looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus. Now, Isaac is not the sharpest knife in the drawer, I think, because he's a little slow on the uptake. When they get to the top of the mountain, it starts to sink in and make sense to Isaac because he goes, Dad, this is a sacrifice, right? Where's the lamb? And Abraham, in incredible faith, says, God will provide the lamb. God will provide the sacrifice. But so far, nothing. So they're standing out there, and Abraham is obedient, and he piles up the wood, and he ties up Isaac, and he lays him over the wood, and he grabs the knife, and he holds it over his son. Then he's about to do the most painful thing out of obedience to God. But then, but then verse 11 comes, and I want us to take a look at it. This is awesome. Watch this. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, now, before we go on and see what the angel of the Lord said, we've covered this before, but I want you to keep it in mind. As you go through the Old Testament, where you see the words, the angel of the Lord, rather than an angel of the Lord, most times, the vast majority of times, and this time is this case, the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate, pre-Bethlehem, Jesus Christ appearing. So this whole scene, which is to picture the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, 
It's about to happen. And Jesus shows up. And he says, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham answered, here I am. Here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from who? From me. It's Jesus stepping in and saying, God will provide the sacrifice. I will be the ultimate sacrifice. No, you don't have to kill your only son. I am the only son, and I will come willingly one day to lay down my life for those that I love. And so Abraham looks around, and there's a ram that is caught in the bush. Very rare occurrence. And he takes him. He sacrifices the ram at that place because God provided the sacrifice. And he named that place. He built an altar, and he named that place God will provide. The Lord will provide. And God affirmed his promise to Isaiah. And he said, I will make for you descendants that are more numerous than the stars in the sky, more great in number than the sand, the grains of sand on the seashore. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ or you become one this morning, one of those stars, one of those grains of sand is you. He's talking about you. That God provided in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. So Isaac didn't have to die, and you and I don't have to die either. Bible scholars have long debated about the age of Isaac when he did this. They said he had to be old enough to understand sacrifice. He had to be old enough to carry the wood. He had to be old enough to to participate with his father. Um, So they uh, estimate that he was at least 10 years old, but they also estimate that he was no more than 12 because he was, if he was older than 12, he'd be a teenager and that wouldn't really be a sacrifice. Just a little lightness. Just a little lightness. But the continuation of sacrifice, forfeiting one thing for another thing that is considered to be of greater value. The ram was considered to be of greater value than Isaac. So we go to Exodus chapter 12 and in the news and in the papers and you've seen in the past couple of weeks what's gone on in Egypt right? The people are standing up and they're crying out. They want freedom. They want true freedom, not this, not this mock democracy that they had. Now, the, the, those tensions for freedom in Egypt date all the way back to the very uh, early days. And in Exodus 12, God's people are, are enslaved in Egypt. Pharaoh has kept them slaves and prisoners and, 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 uh, and they're, he's oppressing them. And they're crying out to God to deliver them, to set them free. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened. If you grew up in the church, you ever went to VBS or, or children's church, he said, come on, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, oh, let my people go. You're leaving me hanging. You know it, and you're leaving me hanging. I, okay, I get it. I know where we stand. But Pharaoh's heart was so hardened that he would not release the Jewish people, the people that God had chosen, Abraham's line. He would not let them free. So in God's mercy, he gives them progressively worse curses and and plagues upon the Egyptian people that they might 
know that he is God and set his people free. But Pharaoh's heart is so hard that it gets to the point where God is going to use the blood sacrifice. He's going to use a blood sacrifice to set his people free. So through Moses, God says, I want you to instruct the people. This is the first Passover. I want you to instruct the people that every family is to get a lamb. Now, if your family is not big enough, get together with another family and, and, and have a dinner of a lamb and you will, you'll slaughter the lamb and you're going to have it. And I want you to stay indoors, okay? Now, before, before you do that, I want you to take some of the blood of the lamb and I want you to put it on the doorposts of the house where you're going to be sleeping. So stay inside and make sure that blood is on your doorpost because that night I'm going to sweep over Egypt and I'm going to take the firstborn of every family who does not live in a house that has the blood on the doorpost. And so at midnight, God did just that. He swept through Egypt and took and and brought to death the firstborn of every family from Pharaoh to the prisoner in jail to the cattle in the field. And, And the Bible says there was crying and weeping because there was so much death in Egypt, but everybody who was in the homes that had the blood on the doorposts was saved, was not touched. Death did not come to them. To this day, the Jewish people, and we celebrate the Passover that pointed to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And finally, through that blood sacrifice, Pharaoh got to the point where he said, go, just go, go now. Your God is, Lord, go. And through a blood sacrifice, he set his people free. And so one of the most important questions we can ask is, is Jesus' blood on the doorpost of our hearts? Because if so, then sin will not kill us. It will not defeat us. He is our sacrifice. It will bring us to life and cleanse us. Part two, we need to see Jesus as the perfect sacrifice, the perfect blood sacrifice. Now watch this. We have defined, we have defined sacrifice as the forfeit of one thing for another thing that is perceived to be of greater value. Now in this, this is awesome. Jesus turns it on its head. He reverses it. Jesus, the most precious, the most valuable, the most lovely person that has ever walked the face of the earth. He is God incarnate, God who put on skin. The most valuable goes to the cross for you and for me, sacrificing his life, the blood sacrifice, Not for one. It's supposed to be for one who is perceived to be more valuable. Isn't that awesome? That Jesus Christ, the most valuable one, humbled himself and saw your life and my life as more valuable than his life. And so he took all the sin of the world, all the the thoughts, all the deeds, all the ugly things that have been done to you and by you and me, took that upon himself and became the blood sacrifice on the cross in our place as a substitute for our sins. He turned it on its head. I want us to see in John 3, 16, it says, God so loved the world that whoever, whoever, that's you, that's me, whoever would believe in him, he treated as more valuable than his own life. 
That's the ultimate sacrifice. We see in Romans 3. Here we are. We're going to go to verse 25. I want to use the NIV because it, um, it, it, it unpacks this in a, in a way that it's going to be easier to understand. God the Father presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement, which means what he promised to Adam and Eve the very first, right after the fall. This is going to be the one who brings everything together. He promised it to Abraham. This is going to be the one who brings it all together, who brings you back to God. The sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. That is the ultimate blood sacrifice, Jesus Christ. So because it's by faith, it's no longer, do you live a moral enough life do you do more good than bad so that when it's put on the scales, the good side goes like this? No. It's do you have the blood of Jesus Christ on the doorposts of your heart by faith, by faith in his blood? He did this to demonstrate his justice because all sin results in death, right? So it's either going to result in our eternal death or Jesus' death on the cross. And that's the choice that we face. Because in God's forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. What does that mean? That means that Jesus' substitutional, sacrificial death on the cross forgave and wiped out sin from the beginning, past, present, and future. He covers it all. He covers it all. He did it to demonstrate, again, his justice because all sin must be punishable by death at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So if you have faith in Jesus, you're seeing this word just, just, justified, justified. Do you know what justified means? It's great. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, here's what he's done for you. It goes far beyond just forgiveness. If you're if you're a forgiven person, you have done these things and you're just forgiven of them. If you're justified, God goes even further to declare you righteous. He doesn't declare you just as a forgiven sinner. He declares you righteous with the righteousness of Christ. That's awesome. That's Jesus. That's the gospel. That's what we're getting excited about. That's what we celebrate. He justifies. It's wonderful. Become just. Oh, and that's what God does for us. That's what God does for us. Well, we went, Jesus offers his blood on the doorpost of every heart who will trust in him, who will have faith in him. That's what we celebrate. So number three, before we go, if you want to write down Hebrews 9, if you want to do some more study, on the transition from the Old Testament system of blood sacrifice to Jesus Christ, Hebrews 9 is a great place to do some extra study. Number three, um, and this is our final part, how do we make sense of Jesus' sacrifice for us? Well, that's before three. I lied. Forgive me. How do we make sense of Jesus as sacrifice for us? Chess! Chess? Yeah, chess, the game of chess. Now, chess is a game for people who scored approximately twice as high as I did on the SAT. They get this. They know all the possible moves. They're thinking strategies that go beyond like several moves ahead. They know what you're thinking. It's scary. Any chess players out there? Yeah, yeah, you're scary, smart folks. God bless you. 
you were people who would not talk to me in high school. But like baseball, I could not play chess, but I understood enough about what it means. Here's what you do. The game is all about protecting who? The king. That's right. You'll sacrifice the pawns. They're the sacrifice fly, right? They're like the homeless JV of the chessboard. You'll sacrifice the pawns. Don't laugh. I was JV. You sacrifice the pawns. You sacrifice the rook. You sacrifice the bishop. You even sacrifice the queen. But whatever you do, you protect the king. Because once the opponent takes your king, what happens? Game over. You lose. The kingdom falls, and they, they're, they're haughty and all this stuff. They win, you lose. Right? The game of chess is the antithesis or the opposite of the gospel. I'm not saying stop playing. I'm just saying look at it this way. In the gospel, the king runs out front immediately and offers himself to be captured so that the pawns, that's me, that's you, the rooks, the bishop, the queen might go free. King Jesus runs out front and says, take me. Let them go. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. So how are we to be living in light of the fact that Jesus is the ultimate blood sacrifice that brings us peace with God and declares us righteous? How are our lives supposed to be different? Back in the Romans chapter 12, what are we supposed to do? Pick it up in verse 1. Paul is writing, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because God has been so good, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay, here's something. He's saying Christ was the end of the blood sacrifice, right? He has done enough to cover all things, all sin, past, present, future, everything in your life, past, present, future, in light of that. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, living sacrifice doesn't just mean not dead. It also means lived out, expressed in your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds, in your attitudes, in your relationships. Live your life as an open-handed living sacrifice. Do that, which is your holy and acceptable worship, your spiritual worship. So worship is more than 25 minutes of singing our, our lungs out and raising our hands during the first 25 minutes of the service. It's being a living sacrifice 24-7 to be a living sacrifice because Christ has been our sacrifice. He says, do not be conformed to this world in verse 2. What is the pattern of this world? It's self-preservation. Self-preservation. I got to protect myself. If it's a good deal for me, then it's a good deal. If it's a not good deal for me, it's not a good deal. Look out for number one. And all, I'm all about looking out for number one, as long as number one is Jesus Christ. And number two is everybody else. Number three or somewhere else down the list is, is you and me. 
Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That means continually renewing, continually renewing by, by time in the word, by prayer, by listening to God, by praise, by spending time with members of his family and discipleship and fellowship and life groups and all of that, that by testing you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse three, for by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Why? Because we can't be full of ourselves and full of the Holy Spirit, right? The whole condition, the whole heart attitude has to be others' focus for us to be a sacrifice, to be a living sacrifice, because sacrifice is forfeiting one thing for another thing that is considered to be of greater value. So I have to look at everybody as being of greater value than my own self. And we get to the place where Paul wrote, my count my life as nothing. I count my life as nothing that I might finish the race, that I might serve Christ and love on others. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. So let's move down to verse 9. Paul goes on to talk about spiritual gifts, gifts in the church. We'll unpack that at another time. But he talks to us about what being a living sacrifice means in a very practical way because being a living sacrifice is intensely practical. Love that is not demonstrated and lived out is a sham. God demonstrated his love. Christ demonstrated his love on the cross by being with you, by being by being beside you, by setting you free. He didn't just send you a card, say good luck out there. He demonstrated. So verse nine, let's take a look. Love must be sincere. Love must be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Genuine love. The lack of this is, is what is often chased people away from the church, chase people away from Jesus, chase people away from the faith. Because love hasn't been genuine. Love hasn't been genuine. That means don't be a hypocrite. Let your words back up. Let your actions back up your words like Christ did. Christ didn't say, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to set you free. I'm going to give you new life. I'm going to walk with you. Just kidding. No, no. So we need to be pouring out our lives and be gracious and, and you know, you, you, you remember anybody here remember the 70s? Anybody here remember the 70s? Now you left me hanging before. Don't do it again. Don't. A smile in your face all the time. I won't take your place. Those back. Stab it. Lord. All right, that's an example of what you don't want to be like. Love has got to be lived out. Real love must be demonstrated. How? Verse 10. Not going to try that again. <laughs> Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So that is what our lives as followers of Jesus Christ is to be. We're to see others as more valuable and we're to love them passionately. Spend our lives open-handedly to be a living sacrifice for them because in sacrifice, people see Jesus Christ. And we're to love people and not just people for whom we have natural affection, the people we feel close to, not just people. And this is a, this is a big trap, especially for people in ministry, to love people who they think someday might be of benefit to them. Don't just love people 
who you have a natural affection for. Don't just love people who someday might be of benefit to you in your job, in your relationships, financially, socially. You want to love everybody. You want to love the kid in school who had the runny nose and smelled like sour milk. There's somebody in your life like that growing up maybe. You want to love that person. That person is Jesus. Okay, that's verse 10, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Be a living sacrifice. Follow hard after Jesus Christ. Whatever it costs, whatever it costs to be faithful, whatever it costs to be in the Word, whatever it costs to have a healthy prayer life, whatever it costs to be excited and reengaged and reinvigorated, serve the Lord. Be a living sacrifice in following Him, whatever it takes whatever it takes. But be joyful in hope, verse 12 says. Rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. We need to do it. We need to do it. Follow hard after Jesus. All sacrifice will cost you. Are we we square on that? All sacrifice will cost you. If it doesn't cost you, it's not sacrifice. In 2 Samuel 24, what we see is King David toward the end of his life, and here's what happens. David, very compassionate king, sees his people dying of this plague, of this curse, and, and his heart is moved, and he wants, to, he wants to help. He wants to see his people delivered. So the praf, prophet Gad appears to him, and, and he comes to him and says, you need to offer, a, uh, build an altar and offer a sacrifice to the Lord on this particular threshing floor. So David says, okay, I'm going to do it. I want my people healed. I want my people free. I'm going to go to this guy who owns this place, one of his servants, and says, I need to have this um, threshing floor and all the things for the sacrifice. And the guy says, hey, hey, King David, I'll give it to you. And David says, no, I insist on paying you a fair price for it. And here's what he said. Here's what David said. I insist on buying it all from you, for I will not offer the Lord that which costs me nothing. All sacrifice will cost you. Here's the lie that comes along with sacrifice that you must not believe. When I sacrifice for God, when I sacrifice for another, I will have less of what I sacrifice. That is a lie. Supernaturally, we have more of what we sacrifice because the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, comes to replenish, to refill, to revive, and to to reignite us with the very thing so that we can be a constant living sacrifice. You don't have less of what you sacrifice. You have more because you have Jesus. Verse 13, we're going to move quick here. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. We covered that a lot in the generous gospel. If you missed that, catch the podcast. It's up. 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Bless and do not curse them. Sometimes um, we get persecution. Now, we live in the United States where it's free. We're free to praise Jesus, to serve Jesus, to come together like we do this morning. Persecution for most of us, particularly college students, will come in the form of persecution from your peers. Maybe uh, in class, you'll have a faculty member who likes to pick on you and belittle your beliefs. That's persecution, and I don't mean to diminish that. But persecution as 
as the people in the Bible originally heard it, meant, meant death, meant, meant torture, meant arrest, meant imprisonment. What we more have this day is rest, rather than those who persecute us, bless those who inconvenience you. Bless those who inconvenience you. Because more often than not, on a day-to-day basis, you're not facing persecution when you're seeking to be a follower of Jesus Christ, when you're seeking to be a living sacrifice. You're, you're, you're facing inconvenience, lack of comfort, right? We like to protect our comfort. But Jesus says what? In the sheep and the goats, he says, in as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto who? Me. So we see those people. And we see the inconvenience and we rise above it and we become living sacrifices. Now, my wife, Sheree, is taking Quincy to the airport right now, so she's not here. So let's talk about her. She doesn't listen to the podcast, but she might. But I know you. If she finds out, I'll know you talk. If you're a good snuggler, if you're a good lounger, Sheree and I like to, we have couches that kind of come like this. And we'll have like my face here and her face here on different couch. So you get your own couch, but your faces are still there so you can talk or make out or whatever. Um, and if you're a good lounger, you know that you have to work to get the right mojo, right? You got to get comfortable. And then the blanket has to be just right. Do you, are you following me? Okay, just nod. So I know you're a living sacrifice. Well, Sheree sometimes, and, and married men, I will tell you, God gives us our wives to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ, all right? And, and vice versa, too. So sometimes she will wait for me to get the lounging mojo and the blanket just right, and she'll say something like this, Bubby, which is her name for me when she wants something. Bubby, would you please get me some iced tea? So I'm like, and as much as you've done it, and the least of these, you've done it unto me, be a living sacrifice. So off comes the blanket, and I spring to my feet. You picture me springing? Yeah. And I say, sure, I'll get you iced tea. And to help me have the right frame of mind, frame of heart, I write a little song that I sing to myself if I'm, as I'm doing this. And the song is called, I'm Making Iced Tea for Jesus. And it begins singing it to myself. And it goes a little like this in the beginning. I'm making iced tea for Jesus. <laughs> right? But somewhere between the couch and the iced tea maker, I thought to myself, hey, I'm making iced tea for Jesus. And all of a sudden, I don't just want to bring her a glass of iced tea. I want this iced tea to be the best iced tea that has ever been brewed anywhere for anyone. With the right proportions of ice, we drink it with sweet and low. So I want to get that just right. And I'm bringing it back. I'm making iced tea for Jesus. And I bring it to her and I give it to her. And I'm back on the couch and I get my mojo back. And I get the blanket and it's tucked and I'm good. And she takes a sip and she says, Bubby, could you put a little more sweetener in it? So guess what? I'm getting sweetener for Jesus. You know, 
Now that might sound lame, but that is at the core of what we face in the decision to say, it's not my time, it's not my comfort, it's not my money, it's not my effort. It's their blessing and their comfort and their, I don't care who they is. Because when you do it for your brother, your sister, your parent, your spouse, your, your child, your friend, the person with the runny nose who smells like sour milk, you're doing it for Jesus And in that sacrifice, they see Christ who sacrificed himself for them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Weep with those who weep. That's verse 15. What does that mean? It means other people's feelings are more important than yours. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the way that they are feeling and what they're going through is more important than what you're going through. Guys, And I know this because I'm a guy. What does that mean? That means you've had a tough day at work. That means on your ride home, you're not loading up with all the things you're going to unpile on your wife or your roommate or, or your friends or your parents or whatever. You're going to come in and find out where they are how their day has been, how the stresses or the joys of the day have pressed on them and you're going to make them the priority and you're going to bring Jesus into whatever that is, whether it's his joy, his comfort, his, his grieving, his hope. His... Because being a living sacrifice means that their feelings are more important than the way that we're feeling. And in that, we get, we get revived. Live in harmony with one another. Don't, do not be haughty but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. Uh, I used to talk a lot about this being high school, right? High school, um, it's easy to see because there are people that you won't talk to. There are people you won't be associated with. There are people you won't engage socially um, or, or give the time of day to because it will be social suicide. And so you ignore them. And um, I'm not picking on high schoolers. It's just easier to see there. We go on and we play the same games as adults. It's just easier. It's easier to play because we don't all live on the same hall. And there are hurting people whom we won't associate ourselves with because they're beneath us and we claim to serve a God who stooped down to get underneath one like me one like you to lift us up to be our sacrifice, to be our servant. And if he can stoop, there is no one who is beneath my dignity to love on. And so when we don't do that, we leave people ignored and unloved who are marginalized from what society celebrates. And we ignore the very people that Jesus gravitated toward. Be humble, be humble. Don't be wise in your own sight. Don't look down on people. Don't repay evil for evil. We give up the right to pay back, the right for um, settling the score, revenge. We give that up. We give it up. We pay no one for evil. We give it up. You say, well, that's not fair. All four-year-olds know that. That's not fair. Here's the truth. Sacrifice is not fair. And thank God it's not, because if it was, I'd be out in the cold. 
If it wasn't, I would have no hope. If it wasn't, if it was fair, you and I would be without a sacrifice and without a Savior. Praise God it's not fair. Sacrifice wounds the one who loves the most so that the one who hurts and is broken the most can be blessed. That sacrifice, that sacrifice. Here's the mother-in-law verse. I think you'll like this. Verse 18. She doesn't listen to the podcast either. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Why? Because God knew that there would be some people who were just such colossal wingnuts that you can't get along with them. You just can't make it work. But make sure that in that relationship, it is absolutely not because you haven't tried again and again and again and again to be a living sacrifice, to reach out in love, to reach out in forgiveness, and to give them an opportunity to come back into relationship because that's what Jesus does for us. Will it work for everybody? No. Will it work for your mother-in-law? Maybe not. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. We look at this. Leave it to the wrath of God. It is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Bring him to repentance. Let him see the truth. I was a seminarian, a postgraduate student, studying to be pastor in a rough neighborhood in, in, in Chicago. Wow. Sacrificed your time for this one. Um, so he's driving a bus at night, bad neighborhood. Some three gang members try to get on without paying. Goes to the next stop and kicks them off. They get off the bus. He figures he won't see them again. But they are familiar with the bus route and know the last stop at the station. And late at night, he's alone when he parks his bus and gets out to go to his car, and they're waiting for him. And they beat him with pipes, and they leave him for dead. After a, a healthy stint in the hospital, he appears in court for their sentencing. They were caught. He says to the judge, I'd like you to add up all the time that you're about to sentence these three men to. I'd like you to add it up, and I would like to serve it in their place, and you set them free. And the judge was livid. He said, there is no precedent for something like this. This is unheard of. He says, no, it's not. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ took my sin, your sin, their sins, and the sins of the world as the Lamb of God and went to the cross to endure the punishment that we deserved so that we could go free. I wish to do the same. That's sacrifice. That's sacrifice. We're going to close. Um, a lot of you are college students, so I, I want you to know about one of your predecessors. Shortly after I came to Western in 1997, in the summer of 1998, there was a young college student who was going into his sophomore year. His name was Peter. Peter was um, an accomplished rock climber. Excellent. Had done this for years. Josh, you could relate. I mean, he was technically sound talented and got joy from climbing on rock faces that people wouldn't even dream of climbing. Well, he and some of his friends went to Yellowstone the summer before he was to come back to school. He was climbing with a buddy named Casey on this one particular climb. There were four or five of them there. And he was holding the belay 
And Casey was up maybe more than 300 feet on the rock face when all of a sudden, unforeseen, the ground begins to shake. And the cries from all over the park came out for people to get away from the rocks, to get into the open area and to hide. And they had plenty of time to do so because at first it was just the shaking and then small rocks began to give way. And and Peter knew that he had a decision to make. He would either hold a proper belay or he would drop it and run. And if he held the proper belay, then Casey would likely be safe. And if he didn't, he would surely die at that height, at that height. ground shook more violently and large boulders began to fall. Some the size of washing machines, others the size of small cars. And Peter was buried. And when they pulled the rocks away, life had left Peter's body, but he held a proper belay. And Casey, who was hanging there, saved. Peter was a follower of Jesus Christ, and he knew the call to see others as more valuable than ourselves, no matter the cost. Every summer, Casey comes back to teach rock climbing and to tell the story of his friend who taught him what sacrifice First Peter 3.18 says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The blood sacrifice is over. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring us to God in understanding sacrifice, whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or you're just checking him out. He did this to bring us another step closer to God. If you're a follower, to enter into the life of being a living sacrifice even more. We can't do that by our own efforts. We can only do it by the one who is sacrificed, living through us and sacrificing again through us. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, he's offering his sacrifice. Put his blood on the doorpost of your heart when you receive him as the one who not only sets you free, but declares you righteous. One day, that is all that matters. So we got a question before us. For followers of Jesus Christ, will we allow Christ to draw us closer to God and make us a living sacrifice. And for those who are still on the outside, he's calling, come in. And on the doorposts of your heart, let me put my blood and you will live. I am the sacrifice. Let's pray.